Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him, and assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then... Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star... He, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy, and going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. And then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh, and being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another word, no, by another way. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, good morning, City Church. Happy Advent. Happy Thanksgiving. Hope you had a wonderful week of celebration uh, as uh, we celebrated Thanksgiving this past week and then get to enter into this new and very special season of Advent. Uh, and Advent is a, uh, is a particular word. Uh, it comes from the, the uh, Latin word Adventus, which means coming. And as Jim said earlier, uh, it is a word uh, that traditionally uh, marks this season of time, this four weeks before we come up to Christmas Day in the church calendar where Christians throughout history and all across the world have celebrated the coming of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Uh, it points back to the kind of the wonderful and majestic and wonderful, oh, said wonderful twice, uh, incredible, uh, uh, magnificent, uh, there you go, uh, story of our, fir- our Savior's com- first coming into this world. And then it points us forward to that second coming where he promises that he's going to return again, uh, and in that day, make all things right, wipe away every tear, uh, create a new heavens and a new earth uh, that we will be a part of for all eternity if we are in Jesus Christ. Um, And it is not just a season where uh, much of our culture rests, which is just kind of a celebration time. Uh, Most uh, people in our culture today see this as kind of a season just of a big party for four weeks leading up for Christmas where you can think about all the things you could buy and all the things that you're going to get and all those kind of things. Uh, This specifically in church history has been a season where we lean into and we think deeply about what it means to live in the time in between the two comings of our Savior in a world that is broken and sinful and ugly oftentimes where things like war exist and pandemics where awful things happen across the world and in our own lives. And we are able to reflect in the reality of the brokenness of our world in the light of the promises of our God. And that actually draws us to a place of comfort and of hope and of joy and of peace and these great themes that we think about this time of year. Uh, This week, we're actually going to be leaning in. uh, And over the next couple of weeks, 
uh, we're going to be leaning into some of these different themes. And today we're going to be looking specifically at the idea of hope and prophecy. And we're going to be doing this by looking at a very famous passage. Um, it's a passage that comes to us here in, uh, in Matthew 2, but it's one that actually reflects on and actually looks deeply into the idea of the coming of the wise men. Now, this is an event that happened after Jesus' birth, so we're doing a little bit of this already, not yet already, right? Uh, we're fo focusing on something that's already happened in the present, um, but it is something uh, which I believe can help us very deeply to think deeply again about the wonder of what this time of year is all about. Um, and to draw us into the awe of the Advent season and the coming of our Savior. And so that's what I want us to do today, dive into this story, uh, learn from it, grow from it. But before we do that, let's pray. Because as we all know, there's nothing we can do, and it doesn't matter what we do. If Jesus isn't with us, um, it all will fail. So we need him to come even now to awaken us to the wonder of his word. So let's pray and ask him to do just that. Father, we praise you for this opportunity to be here this morning, to be in your word, and we just pray that you would remember your promises. Open our hearts and minds. Uh, help us to, to see clearly, to hear intently. Uh, Lord, I pray that you would uh, transform our hearts so that we can respond uh, in awe and in wonder of what you have done. And that through that, Lord, that you would truly change us and knit us together as your people. Show us how our story is a part of this great story that you've been working out throughout time and history, and that you are the great story master who is going to bring it all to its rightful conclusion, and that in you, despite the brokenness of our world, despite our hurts, are the one that we can actually hope in. And we pray all of this in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. All right. So I'm just going to dive right in, and we're going to kind of walk through this story. And in some ways, this is going to be a little bit different than what we typically do. I, as you, if you've been around our church and you've kind of been involved, you know that I am a big proponent of uh, what's known as exegetical preaching uh, or expository preaching. love to walk through a particular book of the Bible and unpack the story uh, as it happens within its context and look at how it kind of fits within the larger story. But it's also good at times to kind of step back for a little bit and be more thematic in how we approach things. And the Advent season is a good opportunity for that. And this story particularly is a good opportunity for us to think deeply about uh, some of the themes and how they're worked out. And as we look at this passage here, we begin to unpack a really uh, famous story of the coming of the wise men uh, to see Jesus. And, you know, we have songs about this. We have stories about this. Uh, it's a well-known story. Um, but it is a story that I have found, and probably you have found too, I would guess, uh, that is not one that we've thought a whole lot about and what it means specifically uh, for the larger story and how it connects. And it, it does connect in some really powerful and wonderful ways, even to the book of Daniel, which we've been studying throughout this fall. Um, and I'm hopeful that we'll be able to see some of that as we go along. And the first question I want us to ask as we begin to unpack and dive into this passage is, who are these wise men? Who are these wise men? And what we see here immediately in verse 1 is that it tells us that they were wise men from the east. Now, uh, this actually informs us quite a bit of things that we can uh, be helpful in knowing who they are. First of all, it says wise men here. The actual word that's used in the Greek is magi. And uh, magi were kind of oriental scientists. Uh, they were magicians and astrologers. Uh, and they studied the elements of the world and actually traced and mapped the stars and how they worked together in order to make predictions and interpret dreams. They were the, the scientists of their time. They were the great philosophers of their time. 
And so what we see here is that these, uh, uh, these magi are the ones who are coming, and they were well-known figures within that time. And it says here as well that they were from the east. Now, this could obviously mean all kinds of different uh, nations or lands that would have been to the east of Israel at the time. Um, but in this particular time frame, that phrase, in the east, was one in this culture that, that had a specific kind of bearing to it or focus to it. And that is that it oftentimes and most commonly referred to uh, the area of Babylon. Um, it's just like saying if you're in another part of the country, if you say you're going to the south, well, it could be all kinds of things, right? But we have a specific meaning to that, and that means the particular region of our country that is known as the south. And the same was true here. And so what we get here is that uh, this focus on Babylon is in play here. And this makes sense uh, because if you were with us throughout the fall as we were walking through the book of Daniel, uh, what we found in the Old Testament, and specifically in that book, is that the wise men in Babylon were referred to all throughout that book as magi. And even Daniel and his friends were referred to as magi in different passages throughout that, uh, that scripture. So this is what is in play here. Moreover, this view fits perfectly within the latter story um, that we are told in the book of Daniel. The Magi were very interested in the stars. They were ones who mapped and controlled. In fact, at this time period, they were known as the world's foremost authorities on astrological matters. Uh, people from all over the world would go to Babylon just to learn about the stars, learn about interpreting the stars, learn about how these things affected life and how they could help predict uh, the things that were coming. They had uh, books and volumes and maps and uh, schedules that went all the way back to the 8th century BC. Um, and because of this, they had a lot of knowledge about how the stars worked. Therefore, it seems pretty safe to assume that from the east in this passage is referring not only to Babylon, but to these particular scientists that we've seen already in the book of Daniel. And this is a beautiful kind of connection that we're seeing happening here. However, there are some things in this passage that we need to be really careful about uh, in this kind of common understanding of the story that we bring to this. Uh, if I were to ask you how many magi there were that came uh, to see Jesus, how many would you say? How many wise men came to see Jesus? Three, right? Does that say that in the text? No. So sometimes our stories and our songs actually take a little bit of, uh, you know, and it may be easier if you're doing like a nativity scene in your church to have three guys up there instead of 10 or 20. But the reality is, is that it was much more likely that it was a very large group of people that came, probably 10 to 20 uh, different uh, magis that came traveling in this large, probably camel caravan that came across the desert to Jerusalem to see this great king. Uh, and this was the common practice of the day. You would actually have these kind of large, uh, wealthy uh, caravans that would come and travel to see different things. Uh, it was about 550 miles from Babylon to Jerusalem, so this was a long journey. Uh, camels traveled at a speed of about two to three miles an hour. So uh, this would have taken someone in the neighborhood of 28 to 37 days for them to make this trip. This was not a short endeavor. Uh, and we know from history as well that this was not a safe area to be traveling across. Uh, a lot of robbers, a lot of uh, kind of uh, insidious people trying to rob you and take your possessions. And so we know from history as well that most of the time when you had large caravans that would come along about this, especially very wealthy people like the Magi were, uh, that they would have had large military kind of uh, uh, presence with them. They would have brought kind of military people to protect them and had an escort in that way. And all of this would have been 
quite a sight to see as they're traveling across and coming into Jerusalem. This is a huge group coming, military escorted group that's kind of coming along. So hopefully that gives you a little bit of context of what the actual picture of what's happening is. And it begs the question, what, it po- what possibly could have motivated uh, this group of wealthy you know, magi from 550 miles away to make this huge trip uh, to try to figure out what's going on in Jerusalem? And the answer we find here in verse 2, we're told that they came to Jerusalem asking, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. Now, if we take this verse at face value, there seems to be a few straightforward things that we need to kind of glean from this passage. First, as we've already seen, these guys were astrologers. Uh, Therefore, uh, the statement that they had seen a star rise in the sky, um, and it had led them to the conclusion uh, that they should come and see what was going on, it means that something had happened. They had seen something in their kind of regular astrological study of the skies uh, that had been amazing to them. And it led them to the fact that they needed to put together this great caravan to come along. So we have this sense that something happened here. Um, and that this was pointing forward to a prophecy that was coming to fruition in this particular moment. Secondly, uh, this wasn't just any child that they were coming to see. Uh, this was going to be the king of the Jews. Now, this was a shocking statement, especially to those in Jerusalem as they were coming along. But this is exactly what they're saying that the prophecy was all about. That not only was a child to be born, but this child was going to become the king of the Jews. And as a result, they had come to worship this king. Now, again, this was a a common practice. As you remember, if you were with us when we were studying through uh, the book of Daniel, uh, there were multiple different gods, multiple different people that they worshipped during that time. And so they would have seen this as kind of not only a uh, fulfillment of prophecy, but the coming of someone who had been truly great and was going to shape world history in this way. You get a little bit of that context. Now, all this seems pretty crazy to our modern minds, um, but this is actually a practice that was very common during that time and very common for the Magi during that time as well. Uh, We actually have tons of records from this time about how they would use the stars to try to determine these different prophecies, and then they would go seeking out the fulfillment of these in order to fit within their context of how they saw the world. Um, And so that seems to be exactly what's going on here. We have a ton of evidence as well uh, that this time period, there was a widespread understanding that a prophecy had been made that there was going to be the coming of a king and the birth of a king that was going to happen in Jerusalem or in that area in Israel and that a star would be the sign of his coming. And this is not only true within uh, the scriptures, but it was true within multiple different kind of versions or, or different avenues that we saw. We have rabbinic writings that talked about this prophecy and how it was going to be fulfilled. Uh, we have Jewish historians like Josephus that regularly talked about this idea of this prophecy that was going to be fulfilled. We even have Roman documents. Uh, we have a document called the Damascus document, which was Qumran uh, community. Um, within the context of some of the older documents that we have found and gathered together uh, that clearly understands the words of Balaam in Numbers 24 to be a prophecy looking forward to the coming of this very king. And this is what it says. It says, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. And they would have understood this to be the specific calling or the specific prophecy of the coming of this king. And they even unpacked that in some of these documents. 
And given all this, the idea that a group of astrologers interpreting the stars in this way isn't really all that surprising. Especially if we remember there's still a good number of Jews who were living in Babylon in that time. You remember we talked about the exile and the coming out of the exile. Uh, there were Jews that actually stayed behind when the Jews returned to Jerusalem after the book of Daniel. Um, they were living there. And we have lots of evidence to suggest that not only was Daniel a very long-standing and very powerful member of that society, but that his belief system, right, as we've looked through the book of Daniel, actually leaked its way into and became a prominent way for many people in that culture to think about things. So they would have had the Jewish Old Testament, at least up until that point. They would have known the prophecies. They would have studied these things, and they would have understood what it was pointing to or at least the idea of what it was pointing to. And this is miraculous. And this understanding is further reinforced by the gifts that we see the Magi bring uh, to the child in this passage. Uh, and this is really shocking to think about. Normally we just kind of, these are little things that we have in the, you know, our nativity scenes that we put together. But the fact that they brought these specific things was really powerful. Um, the idea that they brought gold was something that was brought and given to a king on his birth, at his birth. And so the recognition that this was going to be a great king the idea that they brought frankincense was used in ceremonies of the worship of different gods. And so there was an idea, at least, that this king was going to be greater than just a king, that this was going to be something divinic. And then on from that, they actually brought with them myrrh. Now, this is the most surprising thing that we see here. Myrrh it was used in the embalming of kings, and it represented the idea of suffering in that way. And it was incredibly expensive. It, it was like $10,000 an ounce. Um, and so uh, the fact that they brought this and actually gave it to this king would have been a very odd thing unless they would have understood some of the Old Testament prophecies that pointed forward to the fact that this king that was coming was also going to be a suffering servant who was going to die for his people. They were connecting these dots. They were seeing these things coming together. And it's truly amazing to see this written out in this way and the gifts that they brought. However, all this doesn't, still doesn't kind of help us to understand what exactly it was that they saw in the stars that led them uh, to the belief that this was happening at this very time and why they should actually pack up all their stuff and head to Jerusalem to see what was going on. Their readings seemed reactive, not proactive, and they seemed interpretive, not predictive, right? Uh, they are seeing something specific that's leading them to the conclusion at this time that they should make this journey. Uh, and furthermore, if we read on in our passage, we discover that whatever it was that the Magi saw was an ongoing event. And this is a really odd thing that you see within this passage. This is not just something that happened once. It's something that seems to be going on and on and on and continuing throughout the entire passage that we're looking at. If you look here at verse 9, we're told that after the Magi had met with the King Herod, behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest in the place where the child was located. There is movement being suggested here, right? The star is moving. It's guiding. It's directing. It clearly indicates uh, that they were following the star and that it was leading them to this child king. Uh, we are even told that it came to rest over the house and pinpointed the location of where Jesus would be born. Now, this is a kind of a crazy thought. Uh, it really is, and you should take it that way. This seems insane. They are following a star that's moving across the sky and ends up pinpointing the very location where they think that this king is going to be born. And as you can imagine, because of this, lots of people throughout history have 
scrambled to try to make sense of how this could possibly be the case. Uh, and as a result, it has led a large number of people uh, to uh, come up with all kinds of different theories. Some of them uh, have the idea of the planetary alignments moving in a particular order in order to make this clear. Some people talk about supernovas and how they come together, that this could have actually explained these things. But the more and more you unpack these theories, the less sense they actually make of what actually this passage and the text and the philosophy and the prophecies are actually talking about. And as a result, it's actually led a lot of people throughout history to reject this passage as being something that's actually true and historic. It's led many people to believe that they could not possibly have been the way that the passage talked about. That it could not have been historic. It could not have been real. It's just a myth. It's just an imaginary story that was created to kind of create some kind of awe in people's minds. And as a result, they've rejected this part of Matthew and much of the rest of Matthew as well because they don't believe that it could be true. And for Christians who take the claims of the Bible seriously, this begs an important question. If this is true and a passage like this talks about something that's hard to wrap your mind around, then what are we supposed to do with that? How are we supposed to make sense of this reality? You know, when I was uh, up in Boston, uh, I uh, heard the story of a professor who was up at Gordon-Conwell, a former professor who was up at Gordon-Conwell, which is a seminary on the North Shore of Boston. And uh, his name was Com Colin Nicole. And a friend of mine gave me a book that he read that actually I gave to Jim Hitch, and who is struggling to read through right now because it's a lot of technical stuff. Um, but he, uh, he was a man uh, who was teaching New Testament at this particular seminary. And uh, his wife... Uh, his father uh, was a guy who got really into the idea of the Star of David and trying to figure it out. And he had gotten this DVD and he was watching it and he was really excited about some of the, the things that it was talking about. And he tried to get Colin to read this, uh, to watch this video. And he was very hesitant to do that, you know, because he just wanted to reject these kind of things out of hand. And his wife kind of came up to him one day and just kind of gave him the nudge like, you know, this is your opportunity to get to know your father-in-law, right? Uh, don't lose this opportunity. And so he sighed deeply, he said, and then he leaned in to this. He watched the video with him, and to, uh, not to his surprise, it was horrible. It was awful. Like, I mean, just like making all these like crazy claims, taking the scriptures out of context, not really clearly understanding how hermeneutics and how the Bible fits together, how the story fits together. And so uh, he uh, you know, sighed deeply again, and then his father-in-law, you know, he had a little conversation with his father-in-law, and he, his father-in-law actually asked him, well, if you don't think these things are right, what do you think is right? And at that point, he, he, he entered into what he said was a kind of a moment of despair because he knew the road that he was about to enter into. He was going to have to dive into this. He was going to have to try to figure out what all this was about. And that's exactly what he did. For the love of his wife and for the love of his father-in-law, he began to research and he began to study the passage in Matthew 2 that we're looking at today. Uh, and it piqued his interest because he saw a number of things in there that he had not seen before, especially some of the astrological language that's being used here. Uh, and it's, he started exploring uh, these kind of uh, things that he saw and the theories that he had heard about and that were out there about this star and how it might fit together. And he discovered what he had already uh, thought, which was that the vast majority of these theories were absolutely terrible as well. Uh, and did not take seriously the need to do real uh, kind of thoughtful theological work with them around what the scriptures actually said. 
Um, so he went on to a more in-depth study uh, for the rest of scriptures, and he discovered that there was actually a great deal of cosmological language, of star language, that existed all throughout the scriptures and all throughout the Old Testament in reference to the coming of this particular king and this particular savior. Um, and what some of the passages he found were this. Isaiah 14 refers to the king that is to come as a great star. And this was actually a common thing to refer to as kings and stars in that time period. Revelations 22 and 2 Peter 1 refer to Jesus as the bright and morning star. Uh, Isaiah 7 says that the sign given to Ahaz uh, concerning the coming of the Messiah was to be uh, as deep as Sheol and as high as heaven, that a virgin would conceive and give birth, and that a son, uh, and he would be called Emmanuel, who is God with us. In Isaiah 8, we are told that the sign of the birth of the coming of this king will be a great light shining in the deep darkness of our world. In Isaiah 6, he says, Arise, shine, on your light has come. And the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the peoples. But the Lord will rise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you. And nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. Then you shall see and be radiant. Your heart shall be thrilled and exalted. The wealth of the nations shall come to you. A multitude of camels shall cover you. The young camels of Midian and Ephah. You want to know where that's at? Babylon. All those from Sheba shall come. They shall bring gold and frankincense. This is in Isaiah. And shall bring good news, the praises of the coming of our Lord. And we've already seen the prophecy that he discovered in, November, in Numbers 24 refers to a star that shall come out of Jacob and a scepter that shall rise out of Israel and as a sign of the coming of this great king. And it was in this passage that Dr. Nicole actually found something that it was more significant to that. It was an incredible discovery. The Hebrew word used in Numbers 24 for scepter is a unique word. It's a very rare word, actually, uh, that can be translated as scepter, but it also can be translated as comet. And in fact, in the New English translation, in several of our English translations, that's exactly how we translate that particular word in the Old Testament. And this was fascinating to him. So he began to dive in even more, and it led him to discover that the unique word was actually used all throughout the scriptures in reference to the scepter of this king, the coming of this king, and this Messiah, and as a metaphor for his rule that would come. Moreover, he also discovered that it was very common in the ancient Near East, including in the Babylonian writings, to refer to the comet as a star scepter because it was a unique shape that it had to it. You think about a, a comet, it has a kind of a ball of fire, we think about, then it has a long tail, right? Well, if you hold it upright, it looks exactly like a scepter. So they called it a star scepter in this way. And this in turn led him to start researching comets. And the more he researched, the more it kind of fit together in the understanding of what the passage was talking about. However, he knew that he wasn't a biblical scholar, so he actually says, uh, that he set up an appointment to meet with some actual uh, astronomers, uh, the Armagh Observatory in Northern Ireland. Some of the world's leading astronomers worked there. Um, and when he gave them his research, especially in Matthew 2, what he says in his book is that they got really excited. 
Now, you need to understand, these are not Christians. He says this in the book. These are not people that have any interest nor any uh, willingness to admit that their prophecies are real and those things are coming true. But they got really excited about the language of Matthew 2 because uh, what uh, they found in Matthew 2, they said, is a description that matched how all throughout history we've talked about the idea of comments and following them. Um, and that they knew exactly because of this what it was talking about in the passage. And the idea of following the star as is going before them is exactly how people throughout history would have described the idea of following a comment. Moreover, even in the description of the star, that it stood over the house pointing to the location perfectly fits with the kind of comet's behavior in this kind of way. You know, if a comet actually, uh, as it goes around the sun, one of the weird things about a comet is that its tail doesn't just follow behind it all the time. It actually always faces away from the sun. And so we have multiple occurrences of pictures throughout history or paintings throughout history that has a comet that's actually standing directly straight up with its tail up in the air. So the idea that it would have been pointing directly to a particular spot makes perfect sense within this context. And also, what they discovered is that the Greek word antitol, translated here in verse 2 as rising, is actually a technical term that was used throughout history by astronomers to refer to the phenomenon of what they call a heliatical rising. And what a heliatical rising is, and I know I'm getting a little technical with this, but this is an incredible story is that right as the sun, as the earth actually rotates, as it's flying through the, you know, the universe, uh, in the morning, every morning, uh, there's a moment of time right before the sun rises that you can actually see the new stars as they're about to come. This is the only moment that you can see them. And so every morning, you can see new stars coming just a little bit more and a little bit more as they kind of begin to make their way across the sky. And this... Uh, this time period, this rising, as it's talked about um, in uh, ancient Babylon, uh, was a very, very significant point in the, in the life cycle of a particular star. In fact, they connected it regularly with the idea of uh, world-changing events, of important things that were going to happen throughout history. Now, these things happen all the time. Obviously, the sun rises every morning. You get this kind of rotation. You get different stars that come at different times. Uh, but the reality is they would not have seen this as something as significant unless something particular were happening at this time. And what the astrologers went on to say is that if you were to see a comet coming during this time, that would have been something that would have been hugely significant. They knew exactly how to map all the stars at all the given times. But if they saw a dot that had not been there before coming toward them, as, this, as you got this rising every morning, that would have been something that would have caused their attention. And the astronomers went on to say that if this were to happen within the context of a particular astrological you know, uh, uh, grouping that was significant to them, they could see why they would have gotten so excited during this time. And as they looked over it, and the rest of the research that Dr. Nicole brought to them, one of the things that they discovered was Revelation 12. And in this passage, what we find is that when they'd, uh, <clears throat> they got even more excited about what was happening because they said uh, that any astrologer looking at this particular passage, hearing that and knowing what could have happened during this time would have been utterly amazing. Revelation 12 says this, And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. 
and she was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his head seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. And she gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. Now, just like many passages that talk about prophecies, you read that for the first time and you're like, what the world is going on there, right? This is a lot of what we talked about at the end of Daniel. You read these passages and you're like, this makes absolutely no sense. There's, you know, a woman in the sky giving birth. There's this dragon that's coming along. You know, there's stars and flames and all this kind of stuff. What is they, what are they talking about here? And if you read the book of Revelations, it can be easy to be confused about this. But what these uh, scientists and what Dr. Nicole discovered in this is that this passage and connected to what was going on along with the theory of the comet kind of set the stage for something that could be really, really amazing. The word or the phrase great sign in the Greek can also be translated as constellation in this passage. The first sign, a woman with a crown of 12 stars, as the astrologers looked at this, said that that actually makes perfect sense of the constellation of Virgo, the virgin, that rises at a particular time in a particular setting. And the second sign, a great dragon with seven heads, is clearly, they would say, in reading out this passage, the constellation Hydra, the dragon, which sits directly to the south of Virgo, the virgin, and rises immediately after it in its heliatrical kind of process as it goes along. And, it's, and this discovery in connection with the comet theory that they had already been talking about, as I said, set the stage for something that they thought could be actually amazing. In verse 1, it says that she was clothed with the sun. And this is a reference in this context to the kind of this rising of Virgo, which would have appeared to be clothed with the sun as she approached the horizon every day. The moon under her feet, they said, could only have happened within one particular day at this time period because of the way the moon moves as well. And that would have been September 15th and 6th BC. And a few days later, the comet rose in the womb of the Virgin and the constellation Virgo. The trajectory would have caused it to appear this dot that is appearing and coming toward the earth as one that is growing every day. So what you need to understand here, and this is what the astrologers were saying, if this happened in this order, in this particular con context, you had a, a comet that was coming toward the Earth that they could only see at certain times of the day, appearing in the womb of a constellation that was the Virgin, growing every day that looked exactly like a fetus growing over time. And would, as she moved up in the sky, would have looked like it was descending in her womb and giving birth. And then right after she gave birth would have appeared the dragon who was waiting to consume or to, to eat this baby. So you see the context of what's happening here. And as it rose, the trajectory we would have seen here uh, would have been one in which it would have looked exactly like this kind of giving of birth. And on October 19th, 6 BC, they said Hydra would have been standing on the horizon, his full tail visible, and right at the time of the comet would have been very close to fully leaving the womb of the Virgin. You would have seen 
a spectacular thing that seems to be pointed out here in this passage. It seems that the text suggests that there was some kind of meteor shower or storm that happened. And what they said is that every time a great comet passes by the Earth, you always get these great meteor showers that happen because it's dragging behind it all of this ice and debris. And it makes the skies look like these great meteor showers are happening. And it looks like fire is coming at the Earth. And that's exactly how the passage describes it around the dragon. And at this point, the astronomer said, it seems from the text that a, a meteor would have happened at this time and fireballs would have appeared and they would have been given the appearance that the dragon was on fire and his horns were on fire in the sky. And this would have been an incredibly unsettling thing and unwell, uh, overwhelming experience for most people to see. In fact, we have a, uh, a situation in 1833 in which a great comet came by and this very same occurrence happened and that it scared people in Europe so much that almost the entire society went to church that night to repent of their sins. And it looks like, in the paintings that we have of this, you know in those Star Wars movies when they're about to hit hyperspace and you just like, it looks like just stars are flying at you? Well, we are flying through the universe just like that. But that's exactly what it looks like. And so they would have seen this and experienced this in its full power and glory. And according to this timeline, which they kind of mapped out and added in and put into their kind of like uh, calculations around this and plugged into their data charting software, the perceived birth would have occurred on the very next day at twilight. And this would have corresponded with a point in the orbit of the comet in which we would have become visible, which we have slowly stretched across the dome of the sky from the eastern horizon all the way to the western horizon and resembled the great scepter resting in Jerusalem. When a great comet appears like that and its tail begins to swirl around, what happens is the tail actually goes before the comet and it stretches across the sky and it looks like it's pinpointing a particular spot on the other side of the dome of the sky. So you would have had a birth and then you would have had a great scepter growing across the sky and actually pointing the direction that they should go if this happened until the sun rose and caught the comet up in its light, and then they would have seen this every day for the next month or so. Now, if all this was accurate, which certainly seems to be the case with the text, I have some friends of mine who are Scottish Presbyterian ministers, and they are very serious about uh, the accuracy of the scriptures and keeping very close to what the scriptures say, and after seeing Dr. Cole's research on this, would say that this seems to be absolutely what happened. And if this is absolutely what happened, we now know that Jesus was most likely born on October 20th, 6 BC. Maybe not surprisingly, the exact time of year when the shepherds would have been out in the fields by night watching their sheep. Truly amazing. Now, if you were an ancient Babylonian astronomer watching all this happen, and knowledgeable of the Hebrew prophecies of what might could have happened during this time period, you think something like this might have convinced you to pack up a couple of camels and hoof it over to Jerusalem to see what was going on, right? You think it might have convinced you to gather gifts that are appropriate for the coming of a king. You think it might have caused you to rejoice exceedingly with great joy when you saw the star standing over and actually pinpointing the place where this king was to be born. It all seems to fit within the context of the text in human history. Where it also fits perfectly with Herod's response here. 
In 7 BC, Herod had killed both his wife and one of his sons because he was incredibly concerned and paranoid about the fact that they were going to try to overthrow him and take his crown away from him. And so he's incredibly paranoid at this time. He's killed his own family members. And all of a sudden, out of the east comes this huge military-escorted caravan asking where the king of the Jews is to be born. One little kind of side note, one of his titles was king of the Jews. So this led him to be slightly disturbed, you might say, or slightly annoyed at the situation. So much so that we find out in the rest of the passage and in another passage in the scripture that he went on to actually implement uh, a strategy of genocide for young children under a particular age to make sure that they could kill off this particular king. And in this, we get this kind of vibrant, beautiful picture that the scriptures paint of what is going on here, the fulfillment of prophecy, the coming of these great caravans of people to see this great king, all of these things coming to culmination in this particular passage. And the poetry of it is absolutely breathtaking. The stage on which God of the universe is performing his great drama is nothing less than cosmic in its scope and how he is orchestrating the cosmos to create a sign for us to know about the coming of his son in this world. He literally moved heaven and earth to do that. However, as amazing as this sign is, and irrespective of if it all fits together or not, it is truly amazing. I do think it's actually something that we need to take seriously, because I do think it fits within the scriptures. But irrespective of that, it is nothing compared to the wonder of what those wise men found when they entered in to that little shed on that particular night that they arrived and found that little baby sleeping in a manger. The virgin actually did conceive and give birth. The baby was born, and it was Emmanuel, who is God with us. And according to the Bible, the Christmas story is all about the incarnation, the word becoming flesh and dwelling among us, the king of the universe, the creator and sustainer of all things, breaking into our world, God himself becoming a man. Martin Luther once said, the child, this helpless and nursing babe, was at the same time holding the very fabric of the universe together. Now, this is truly amazing. But if we're honest, it's also disconcerting, if you really think about it. And the reason it's disconcerting is because we don't like the idea of kings coming. We like the stories about them, but when it becomes very personal to us, it begins to disturb us deeply within our core. Because we don't like the idea of coming, somebody coming to tell us how we're supposed to live our lives. We don't like the idea of a Lord coming to actually give us the rules by which we are supposed to live. And as a result, we realize, when we realize who this baby is, it often leads us to a place of becoming pretty off-putting to our lives, disturbing to our core. And many of us, I would argue, lots of people, maybe even most people in our culture today, react to this kind of thing and the idea of just how Herod did, that he doesn't want someone coming and challenging his sovereignty in this world. And he would rather try to do everything he could to get rid of it in his mind. It makes me want to do that oftentimes as well. It's part of the tension that we feel in this Advent season. Celebrate the wonder of the coming of our king, struggling deeply 
with our own desire to be our own kings and our own sovereigns in our life. And then wondering why this time of year can be so discouraging for people. In fact, one commentator I read this past week put it this way. How can you live with the terrifying thought that the hurricane has become human, that the fire has become flesh, that life itself has walked into our midst? Christianity either means that or it means nothing. It is either the most devastating disclosure of the deepest reality of the story of the world or it is a sham, total nonsense. And most people unable to cope with either of these two things are condemned to live in the shadow world in between. And if we're honest with ourselves, most of us would have to admit that this shadow world, this in-between place, is where we spend most of our lives, struggling, wondering, reacting. And it begs the question, how in the world can the coming of this king actually be a good thing for us today? And according to the scriptures, we are led to a place of not only recognizing the bluntness of it, but also the wonder of it. It is true that this king has come to reclaim his rightful kingdom and his rightful rule in this world, to reestablish his rule not only in a general sense, but in your life, in the way that you make choices, in the way that how you live. However, part of the true wonder of this story is that he did not come to do so through oppression and slavery like the vast majority of kings throughout history have. Instead, Jesus came in humility and in weakness. He was born in a cattle trough. He was born in a backwater region of the world. He was born in complete poverty and in darkness. And he ultimately lived a life in which he laid down his life so that you and I might be saved from our sins and actually restored to our right relationship with our king. How can the story of the coming king be good news? It's good news because it's the story of how the God of the universe orchestrated all the cosmos to point us forward to what we desperately need, and that is a king who was born to die for you so that you might know the hope that he brings into this world. And when you realize this, you will truly grasp at this baby and why he came. You will, like the wise men in our passage, be drawn to his bedside to worship him and to crown him as king in your own heart. Because if it's true, then nothing could be better than the news of this coming king. And this is what the Advent season is all about. You've heard the Christmas carol, We Three Kings of Orient Are. I've said that there's so many good things in there, but there's some things that we need to be careful about. But some of the good things are that it proclaims to us some of the wonder of this time of year. It says, so bring him incense, gold and myrrh, come peasant king to own him. The king of kings salvation, salvation brings, but loving hearts enthrone him. Simply put, this is an invitation to come and to worship at the bedside of our king this season. Your king has come. The bright morning star has risen upon you, and he has given everything so that you might have salvation in him. Therefore, no matter who you are, a peasant or a king, a janitor or a, a doctor, we are all being called to enthrone him in our hearts this season and to worship him as our true king. 2 Peter 1.19 says this, We now have the prophetic word before fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention, as a lamp shining in the dark places of this world, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Star of wonder, star of light. 
westward leaning, still proceeding, guide us to thy perfect way. I hope this passage has been something that will actually guide you there this season. That will remind you not only of the wonder of how our God does orchestrate great things within the story, my story, your story, his story in this world, but also in the coming of our Savior, who is the most wonderful and amazing and awe-inspiring thing that's ever happened in the history of our world. And it's the only hope that we have in the midst of a broken and sinful world where we are desperate to know who he is. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this opportunity. Um, we thank you that your word is something that is powerful and majestic. It is awe-inspiring and wonderful. And as we dig more and more deeply into it, there's no bottom to it. In fact, it just helps us to see our story and the wonder of what you're doing throughout all history in more uh, incredible ways. And Lord, I pray uh, that this passage this morning would be a place by which you inspire us, a place by which you begin at the beginning of this Advent season to draw us into awe and wonder, to actually lead us and point us to the coming of our Savior, to remember what he has done in our past, but to look forward to the promise of that day that he will come again to make all things right. And that through this, Lord, that this would not be a season of consumerism, this would not be a season of trying to uh, puff ourselves up with uh, sticky, sweet, sweet nostalgia, but this would be a season that actually drives us to the reality of the coming of our Lord and lead us to a place of repentance and faith in which we can find the true hope that you have given us in this world. We love you, Lord. We thank you for this opportunity, and we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.